The scripture reading from today is from Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 13. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she went to Jacob. Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, that she may bear upon my knees, and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the woman will call me happy. So she named him Asher. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Last summer, as I grew a baby in my belly, I also grew a flower garden for the first time. And I learned the secret of why I hadn't had much success with it in the past. First, it's because you have to be home enough to actually pay attention to your plants. You know, to water them and weed them and pick them on a daily basis, go figure. And then second, I learned that it really helps to grow things in the earth rather than to put them in containers on a fire escape, for example. As a rookie gardener, I needed the partnership of the earth. I need the magic of what's happening beneath the soil. The stored water, the weird bugs, the natural minerals and nutrients. And you know, it's almost that time of year now when fall is coming and there's a frost. The first frost of the season will be here soon. So it's time to start putting the garden to bed to cut back the plants and pull out the diseased roots and maybe spread a layer of fertilizer or straw if you're really serious about it to help keep the soil healthy for next spring. From one season to the next, we till the garden bed, turning up old soil that will become the nutrients for another year. Never knowing from season to season of crop raising, if a harvest will come or if blooms will appear or if we'll just be turning it all over again never knowing for sure what will bring new life and what will die away. I have perennials that I planted last year that never came up this year, and I have flowers that bloomed purple last year that are bright orange and pink this year. I don't know. But, you know, I think the journey of faith is kind of like this as well. It's continually changing, turning over, showing new colors or reaching new depths being reused or asking us to let things die away. And I would add that I think things grow best when we work with fellow gardeners, sharing wisdom and experience and partnership from one season to the next. And the same is true for reading the Bible. 
10%, I mean, just 10% is what we're dealing with here. That roughly translates into about 111 named women in the Hebrew Bible and hundreds more who are unnamed. That's how much of our Old Testament Bibles are about women. And sometimes it's just the mentioning of female names, like two names in Genesis, for example, today that we're remembering, Bilhah and Zilpah. If 10% is all that we have to work with, then I guess we better at least do justice to that 10%. And doing justice, I think, means that we also learn why it's only 10%. I mean, what is going on in our world, in the biblical world from which these stories were formed, and what's going on in our world still today that keeps these stories of women from being more than just a mere 10%. It's with that philosophy of tilling the soil that I want us to approach the scripture today. Let's attempt to uncover the layers and dig up the disease. Let's pull the weeds and bring fresh soil and nutrients so that maybe, just maybe, we could plant something that will actually blossom and bloom and be worth harvesting far more than just 10%. But here's the thing. There's no way to truly remember Bilhah and Zilpah without also having some hard conversations. We're gonna be talking about things like rape, slavery, infertility, and abuse. And I'm going to intentionally refuse to water down these conversations today because they've been washed over for so many centuries. So if you're listening with kids and you're not ready to have those conversations, or if you identify as someone, particularly as a woman, who might feel triggered by such topics and conversation, then I invite you to listen to your body and just walk away. You don't need a sermon today to feel close to God. Go enjoy nature or do what you need to do to find healing and to find nourishment for your soul. And for the rest of us, well, I invite you to challenge yourself into a close reading of this text, to be community for those who aren't in a place to wrestle with it themselves and allow them to heal while you do the work to learn and grow. This is, after all, what community is for. When we can't breathe ourselves, other will breathe. others will breathe and continue to grow for us. And so to begin with, I think it helps us to recognize who we come to this text as and who I am as I bring myself into any reading of scripture. I have to first recognize and admit that I am a middle-class, educated white woman and a mother of boys. And when I read the scripture, I yearn for relationship, for liberation and equality between the sexes. And here I am born into the richest country in the world. And whether I want to admit it or not, I am more likely to see myself in Leah in this story, or maybe Rachel, but I think I'm more of a girl with the weak eyes. <laughs> You can't tell right now, but I wear really thick glasses, like negative 12.5 prescription. So when I don't have my contact lenses in, something has to be like this close to my face for me to be able to see it. So I'm really grateful that I wasn't born in biblical times because I'm sure there were not glasses strong enough for me. And I probably would have been called something like the girl with weak eyes who dad couldn't marry off. And that right there, is humbling for me to think about as I enter into this text and see what Leah does. All right, so if you don't remember the backstory of what I'm talking about, then let's go back a chapter to Genesis 29. The Rachel and Leah, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Jacob and Rachel love story, okay? 
Biblical marriages are arranged for the primary concern of preserving family possessions like land and blessings and identity. But love, however, is sometimes named as a motivation. And the narrator here makes sure that we understand that Jacob love, love, loves Rachel. He's so love struck that he agrees to work for Laban, the father of Rachel and Leah, for seven years in exchange for marriage to his younger daughter, Rachel. Okay, and the, the narrator makes it very clear that this is not a story about Leah, the daughter with the weak eyes. This is a story about Jacob, who loves Rachel so much that seven years just seems to fly by. And on the long-awaited wedding night, Laban creates this deception. Instead, he leads Leah into the marriage bed with Jacob. And then he give, gives his enslaved woman, Zilpah, to be her maid now that she's a married woman. Okay, there are so many questions that should be asked about the missing details of this story. But what we learn overall is that Laban's trick enables the building of the 12 tribes of Israel. Through 12 baby boys, boys born through the combined efforts of two sisters and two enslaved women, we see the whole promise of God's plan to redeem the world starting to take shape which leaves the reader to wonder whether human deception disrupts the divine plan or whether it advances it and what we're supposed to do with that. So by the end of chapter 29, Jacob has worked for Laban another seven years and is now married to Rachel as well. And we've also learned that Laban gives his enslaved woman, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her maid as a married woman. And now the saga of childbirth begins. Jacob loves Rachel so much, so much more than Leah, which leads the narrator to infer that God opens her womb because God sees that Leah is disfavored, literally meaning hated in the Hebrew. And Leah goes on to birth not one, but four sons to Jacob. And each time with each child, she's hoping that it will bring love to her from her husband. But despite Leah's faith and fertility, she never receives the love of her husband. She does, however... <laughs> earn the envy of her sister, Rachel, who was not bearing children at the time. And this rivalry between the two sisters will continue to play out in generations to come in the relationship of Joseph, for example, and his 11 brothers. You might know that story. Knowing that her fate is dependent upon whether or not she produces an heir, Rachel states her protest to Jacob here at the start of Genesis 30, the man who holds authority over her. She cries out, let me have children, otherwise I am a dead woman. And the irony of this statement being that Rachel will die in childbirth with her second son, Joseph. Jacob's reply is to angrily put it back on her and God, saying that God is the only one who can provide the fruit of the womb. And so in response to that, like a woman, a desperate woman, who's seizing power however she knows how, we see Rachel taking fate into her own hands by forcing her maid Bilhah into surrogacy. Genesis 33 through 6 reads, Here is my maid Bilhah. Couple with her and let her give birth on my knees so that I too may have a son through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife and Jacob coupled with her. And Bilhah subsequently became pregnant and then pregnant again birthing Jacob two sons whom Rachel took as her own. Rachel took them and claimed 
these children as favor from the Lord and triumph over her sister. And that rivalry then motivates Leah, who's currently experiencing infertility after birthing four children of her own, to respond by giving her maid Zilpah as a wife to Jacob. And the saga and the rivalry goes back and forth between the two sisters and their two maids. And most traditional Jewish and Christian prayers, it's Rachel and Leah who are credited and prayed for as the great matriarchs of the faith. And yet the text tells us here that it is two enslaved women whose bodies were used to produce a full third of the 12 tribes of Israel. If we look to the Hebrew in this section, the word maid, the word that's translated as maid, it actually takes on a whole new level of meaning. While Bilhah is enslaved to Laban, she's initially referred to as a shifka, a type of female slave, and later she's called ama, which is another type of female slave. But both terms connote sexual servitude and forced reproductive duties. These two Hebrew terms for enslaved women can be found 120 times within the canon. To translate them as the word maid intentionally obscures the sexual nature of their servitude and it hides the violence of the biblical rhetoric. Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who is this brilliant womanist biblical scholar and the author of a book you should definitely read called Womanist Midrash, she suggests that the better translation for women like Bilhah and Zilpah would be to be called womb slave which applies to girls who would have been young enough to have been presumed fertile, possibly virginal, so there's no question about paternity. In some cases, they might have been proven to be fertile, as in already had children of their own. And while these girls may have performed other maid duties around the home, calling them womb slave brings front and center that their primary purpose is for giving to men for sex for the explicit purpose of impregnating men and continuing the family line. These motherhood stories of Genesis and Exodus are not just about women and their baby boys. They are allegories of the promise written to strengthen the people of Israel as they search for identity and hope under foreign control. This is why it's so important that we remember that patriarchy and imperialism are not the same. It's not just about men and women fighting for equality. It's about one nation over and against another and the oppressive uses of power often playing out through rape and violence against women's bodies that have been used around the world since ancient times. I really love um, how a Jewish feminist perspective helps me to understand these two chapters of Genesis. It's this narrative that focuses on how each matriarch negotiates that space between barrenness and fertility. While the men seek to conquer, claim, and sanctify land, the female heroes of the Bible strive to inscribe their memory on their bodies, sorry, on the bodies of their heirs. The act of birthing and naming, it functions as this counterpart to those who are settling territory and claiming land. The matriarchs mirror this imperialist agenda by going to extreme lengths in order to initiate and improvise for their own covenant with God. They navigate the space between barrenness and fertility, their own desperation, their own power or lack of it. And they show no hesitancy to use the bodies of other women, women over whom they hold power. 
And as a white woman in America, I need to realize that the narrator presents us with nothing to differentiate them from the white American women who benefited from slavery in and around their homes, who violently punished pregnant enslaved women and their children who looked like her children. Exodus 21, 17 is this example of scripture that's used to provide theological justification, not only for the Atlantic slave trade, but also for modern forms of sexual enslavement and colonization. These real world examples in our modern history show us that when we whitewash the Bible, these, and the violence in these biblical narratives, or when we criticize only the patriarchal agenda, and we don't allow for this imperial rhetoric to play out, then we don't realize what it's doing to our communities and to the bodies of women across time, race, and culture. Dr. Gaffney articulates the effect of imperialist readings when she points out that religious readings that valorize Rachel as a matriarch of the faith place the descendants of those held in slavery in the position of identifying with slaveholding values that go against the interests and experiences of their foremothers. When there's no voice or no story given to Zilpah and Bilhah, no glimpse of the pain and agony these women must have endured, as they likely play the role of wet nurse to their beloved children who were stolen from them by women who enslaved them. When we erase the stories of women like this, we also silence the voices of women who identify with them, whether they would choose to or not. When we translate the text into milder words like made, we make it easier for privileged readers like myself to pass off the violence of biblical rape and forced surrogacy as things of the past, things of antiquity that we've evolved from since. When we lift up the names of Rachel and Leah, but we leave out Zilpah and Bilhah, we allow ourselves to bypass questions of morality around the creation of the nation of Israel. And when we focus on this story being about the building of a nation, we don't acknowledge how women's bodies are used for political means. We perpetuate not only seeing women as less than human, but also condoning the use of biblical texts as a weapon, not only for military colonization, but for cultural colonization as well, as a way of denying the rights of women's voices and women's bodies. I mean, how do we appropriately respond to or reject these texts as modern readers today who are concerned about the flourishing of women and all of humanity? I mean, what are we to do with these stories as we confront the headlines coming out of Texas or Afghanistan or so many other places around the world where the intersection of war and power and empire and politics plays out on women's bodies? I can't do justice today to Zilpah and Vilha's story the way that Margaret Atwood has done it. If you need help understanding the pain of what they must have gone through, then just watch or read Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. It's a 1985 dystopian novel that's been turned into a Hulu TV series that's still going. Oh, it's intense. <laughs> it's providing this example of how fiction, a fiction author can envision a violent interpretation of this text. And my initial viewing of The Handmaid's Tale was one 
of shock and horror as I was studying these scriptures in school too. I mean, I wanted to turn away just as the commander's wife turned her head away, the woman who essentially played Rachel, who was unable to watch as her handmaid was being raped by her husband between her own knees. Unable to admit that such violence is literally written on the page of our biblical texts. It's this visual example in modern media that allows us the opportunity to reflect on why we inherently gloss over these things. I mean, the authors of Genesis and Exodus, they've crafted these stories to speak to their original audience, but they can't control the many interpretations and meanings of the text that will evolve through translators and leaders and writers beyond their context. And that's the struggle that we have to sit with today. Okay, let me just finish up by going back to that garden metaphor. We moved into a new house this spring and it doesn't have space for a garden bed and that's been so sad for me. But on a road trip back in June, we stopped by our old house a couple of hours away and no one was living there at the time, seminary housing. And so no one was taking care of my flowers and they were so huge. I mean, some of them were taller than me and mixed in with these weeds that were like eight feet high. I've never seen weeds so high. My beloved garden bed was this jumble of weed and thorn and blossom and bloom. And it hurt my heart to see my flowers like that. I'm kind of embarrassed to say I lost some sleep over it. But I just, I didn't realize how much I had projected onto the care of those plants. I think probably the grief I was feeling was about much more than flowers. I mean, those plants had brought me hope and joy and peace during a time that was filled with so much grief and anxiety and fear. Some of the plants that I dug up before we moved, I transplanted into pots or I took to my parents' yard, but the ones left behind, I've come to realize now, they've become part of the wild. They're still there, standing strong, tall and beautiful. They may not have a human being caring for them, but they are fighting for the light and bringing beauty to the neighbor's eyes. And those weeds jumbled up with them are blooming with purple blossoms that kind of add to the beauty and the mess of it all. And I'm sure the bugs and the butterflies just love it. Sometimes it takes that shift of perspective to see, to see how to salvage the good among the weeds. And so while I don't have a whole lot to offer you in terms of hope and joy about this scripture passage today. I am holding on to this metaphor, this garden, and recognizing that as we sit in the scriptures, we have to sort through the weeds. Without care and presence, the hard stuff can take over. The imperialism, the patriarchy, the violence, it's all embedded in there. And if we're not careful, if we don't get into the dirt and do the work to understand it, the ugliness will spread. And if there is one thing that I have learned as a woman in leadership in the church is that the story is always unfolding. New layers keep unpeeling. You keep waking up. And in the process, you write and rewrite, learn and relearn, read and reread. And as you make new meaning for yourself, you also make new meaning for others. You change. And with any hope, you change the world a little as well. <laughs>